0: You're listening to Rockland Community Church, connecting all generations to Jesus. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment and standing beside him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet." He would have known who and what sort of woman this is, who's touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus, answering, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed five hundred denarii and the other fifty. Fifty. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I. I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Soon afterward, he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others, who provided for them out of their means. The word of
1: the Lord. Well, here we are back again in the Gospel of Luke. It's been a while, but it's safe to assume you remember everything we talked about back last October and November about Luke's gospel, correct? I don't even remember what I talked about. So let me do a quick recap, be very brief, and then as we keep in this over the next several weeks, I'll do some more reminding. Um, But um, the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, why are there four, is because they are written to a different audience with a different intent. All of them are true. All of them are inspired by God, but they have a different audience. So Matthew's gospel to the Jews, um, Mark's gospel to the Romans, Luke's gospel that we're in now to the Greeks, and then John's gospel is generally taken to be a uh, a universal gospel. Almost anybody else that we've missed needs to get this. And so you've got those gospels. Um, we're watching the life of Jesus. This is the this is the gospel that has. Um, uh, the, the great birth story of Jesus in it recorded. Um, we've seen the temptation of Jesus. We've seen him uh, already heal some different people. And he's continuing in his ministry. And now he's going to have an interaction with a very influential Jewish sect or a member of it called a Pharisee and uh, the Pharisees, and you'll see Simon is one of them. It's not Simon Peter, it's a Pharisee named Simon. And in 736, you heard it read, it says, one of the Pharisees asked him, asked Jesus to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. The people that are in this story, Simon the Pharisee and the woman that comes up and wets Jesus' feet with her tears and anoints him and wipes, uh, wipes his feet with her hair, could not be more different. Here's a quick hit on the Pharisees. Um, If you were to ask me, what is the great sin of the Christian church today? I would say um, probably ignoring certain things where God is clear that we should change those things in the Bible. We should update it somehow for today. That would be, I'd say, the big error of the, at least, American church. Back in that day, um, the big error was not that they were removing things. Now, there were. The Sadducees did that. But the Pharisees, that's not what they were doing. They were doing the opposite. They said, this Bible, this Torah, this Old Testament is so, so precious to us. We should take it, and we should add to it. We should add to this is how you have to apply what is spoken in this text. So not just the 613 laws that you find in the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, but then they, had, then they got into situations they didn't have a law explicitly printed what to do. And so the Pharisees and some of the rabbis and the scribes, they were all too happy to say, we'll just write some new laws as to what you should do. And so you've got God's law, and then people weren't sure what to do in certain instances. And so they said, ah, we'll just add man's law to the top of this. We will come up with some of our own things as well. Perhaps starting from trying to be faithful to say, we just want you to know how to interpret this and how to live this out. Because the book of the Torah is so, so, so precious to us. So then you get into principles in the Old Testament, laws in the Old Testament, and then when they started to add to it, that's where the problems kicked in because now it was a matter of opinion. So there's questions about festivals. The Torah, the Old Testament, they, it, or, sorry, the Torah is the first five books, but the Torah spoke about festivals But then there were some other questions that came up, and so they added to it about how you had to practice the festivals. Um, There were questions about, um, about divorce in the Old Testament, questions about fasting, and then specific things would come up and they'd go, I'm not sure what to do, and they would fill that gap and tell people what to do with added laws. So the Sabbath is a real simple example of this, where the Sabbath, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. And you're supposed to, in the Old Testament, you're supposed to rest on that day. And there were some specific things you could and couldn't do. But now all of a sudden, can you imagine if God had said, all right, Moses, write every single possible thing that could come up on the Sabbath and tell people what to do. So if it is your, um, you have an extended cousin that has skinned her knee badly, and so um, is it bad enough that we can go to a doctor on the Sabbath and have the doctor do the work to help heal her, or are we now making the doctor do work, and how far is it to the doctor, and is this injury severe enough to do that, and I've got I've to carry her, and how much does she weigh? Can I carry that much weight on the Sabbath? And you can imagine, if they started going through every single law, You know, this whole book, when I come up to preach, I would just be carrying this thing like this and boom, and set it down. And so the Pharisees were ones that said, oh, we'll help with that. And so they started adding laws. When things came up, they would get together, they would talk, and they would start just inventing their own things of what you're supposed to do. And so what happened was you had God's law here, you had man's law here. This is where the division started happening in the culture. And you started getting different streams of thought, different strands of thought in the culture. And what always happens when you have God's law and man's law, and if you have all this agreement here, pretty quickly, if we're not careful, you forget about this and you just start Agonizing over this other stuff that's, that's cultural, that's maybe my faithful way to apply this looks like this, my faithful way to apply this looks like this. And we start to get divided. This is what happened in their day. They start to get divided over those issues. And instead of going, we have all this stuff in common, they start getting divided over those different issues. And so you'd have this litmus test, if you will, about if you're a true follower of God and it was some man made addition from later. And they had them all the time. Remember, they came to Jesus. What's the greatest commandment? And they're trying to trick him. It says they're trying to trick him. They come to Jesus. They say, what's the greatest commandment? Because that's going to put him in one of the streams. And so that's when Jesus said, love the Lord your God with your heart, mind, soul, strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And he gave him two. He said, I'm not playing your game. I'm going to tell you what's most important. This sums up the whole Old Testament. But they wanted to know Where do you stand on this issue? What do you say is the most important? Because others had gone around, Pharisees, rabbis had gone around to declare that which they thought was most important, and it started to divide, 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 divide. Those are the things that generally divide churches today. Those issues that are applications of some things that perhaps we hold in common, and we have to be careful about being Pharisees about it. A good example of a Pharisee was one time, me. I was teaching some parents. I, I um, spent some time in seminary, getting my doctorate, and I, I studied um, cell phones and social media and how it impacts kids. I did a thing for parents. I was you know, 25 or something. I have no business teaching parents at that, but I did. I was teaching parents and, um, and I was explaining some of the ways that, that um, oh, like our cell phones shape how we view community. This is how the, what the Bible says true community is. This is what our cell phones do. I'm just connected all the time. I'm not really with you because I'm, you know, I'm on the phone with somebody else texting. This is the way it shapes them. And so what I wanted to say was, you know, so parents, um, know these things as you're making decisions for your kids. It's not just as plain and simple. There's actually a lot to it. And so, so know these things as you're making decisions for their kids. That would have been a great place to stop. But instead, I got a little prideful and I just said something to the effect of um, the way we do things with phones now, we just, you know, we're just giving them phones like this is 20 years ago too, right? So like we're just giving them phones and they've got them. And I made a comment, something like, yeah, because a kid needs an iPhone when they're 12. And I just made that little snarky comment. And you know what happened in the room? About half of them applauded and about half of them got real quiet. Because they gave their kids phones maybe even before that. And all of a sudden, what happened was, I, if I had just stopped it, here's some things you need to know as you're making decisions. Don't feel the pressure from other parents about when you got to give it. They're not using the same filter to do it. So you be wise, you be careful. And instead, what I did is I took that and I, and I basically made it sound like, if you've given them a phone before they're 12, an iPhone, you're in sin. Which was a pharisaical way to speak about it. And as soon as it came out of my mouth, I went... Ah, oh, darn it, I shouldn't have said that. But I didn't know how to like backtrack, so I was like, "No, whatever." And I just kind of let it hang. What the Pharisees are doing, they've got principles, and then they're giving something else that's an application of it that they're adding to it and saying, "Now this is the new rule that you must obey," which is exactly what I did. This happens quite a bit. We give these extra rules that become the litmus test for our faith. We have to be very, very careful. Hey, however a parent handles cell phones and social media and gaming and things like that, and what movies they let their kids watch, that can be a litmus test for some parents. Some Pharisaical parents sometimes they go, I can't believe you let your kid watch that. I can't believe you just give them a phone and they go in their room and they just, you know, and, and we can add it to the scriptures. Some things that have happened, like when I grew up in the South, it was... Um, You have to be married by a certain date. You have to start having kids by a certain date. You have to have a certain kind of job. You have to have all these different things. And it got so infused with who you were as a Christian, where I literally would have thought back in that time, if I'm not married by this date, uh, kids by this date, if my life doesn't sort of fit this mold, not just I'm not fitting culturally, it's I'm being a bad Christian. Or one we talk about a lot is this mixture of patriotism, and Christianity. It's a very American thing. It's the litmus test. Well, are you a a good patriot? Because you have to be in order to be a Christian. What about COVID right now? We use sometimes people's vaccination status or their view on masks or distancing as the litmus test about are you a good Christian or not. We got to be careful not being Pharisees. What about schooling our kids? Sending them to homeschool, sending them to public school, sending them to private school. Those things are ways that we can say, I want to be faithful to raising my kids that they would know how to live in a lost world that they would um, grow up, that they'd be educated, they would grow up and know the Lord. And it sometimes manifests itself differently based on what state you live in, uh, based on who you are as a family, based on your life circumstances. But we can get quickly to parents that go, you must homeschool, you must private school, you must go to a public school, don't take all the kids from the schools. And that becomes the litmus test of whether or not you're a true Christian. That's what the Pharisees did. I can be a Pharisee. You can probably be a Pharisee too, I'm guessing. Now, here's the really, really good news about this. We, we sort of have this impression like Jesus really loves, oh, this, this poor woman that comes up and she's so down and out and, and, and uh, she comes up to Jesus and Jesus just loves her so much, but boy, does he loathe those Pharisees. And that is not what this is trying to get to. This is good news, because if you have a tendency to be a Pharisee, it is exhausting, and there is a better way. And what happens in this text is Jesus goes to have a meal with the Pharisees. If, if our theology gets to a point where we go, he really hates the Pharisees. He loves everybody, but he hates the Pharisees. We're missing the whole point. He is going to the Pharisees or the one Pharisee anyway, Simon, that he might repent, that he might change. And he goes to have a meal, which is a really big deal. The, um, you might've seen the painting, The Last Supper, probably so. Um, it's obviously a famous painting, except pretty much everything is wrong with it. Um, they are, uh, this is not how meals looked in that day. I know this was like 1,500 years later or something. This is not how meals looked in that day. Um, First of all, they're sitting on, Uh, they have like stools or chairs right there. It looks like that they are, uh, that they're sitting on a lot of the depictions of the Last Supper. It shows them sitting on chairs. The way that you would eat in those days is you would have a low, long, oval table like this, and you would, you would sit on your, on your left like this. You would lean, you would recline at the table. That's what it says. They reclined at table and you would eat like this. So they are having this uh, meal. And in that day too, you have this, um, they, they had this big open floor plan. Like we think, you know, I invited people over for dinner. They come inside, we shut the door, we sit down at the dinner table and, uh, and we're gonna have our meal. And then like, think about it, like the doorbell rings and we're like, who's coming over? Like everybody I know is here, but all right. Like, it, like we, we're different now. Then this is like, this is outdoors Eating, and it's more like semi public, like picture like a block party almost, like people just coming up and just talking and just sitting around and and chatting. That's the setting for this uh, interaction. So Jesus would be there outside, Simon the Pharisee, perhaps others in the family reclined, and people can walk by and see who is meeting there. It's a very common way to have a meal. What is very uncommon is the type of person that walked up and thought she could just go and be with Jesus and go to the Pharisee's house. Look at this, verse 37. Behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. Okay, she approaches. What does that mean? A a, a sinner is not just someone who makes mistakes. This is somebody in society that by her lifestyle or actions or something about her, they would go, you are not religious. You are clearly apart from the Lord. And in fact, the phrase here that says a woman of the city, you could um, think of it as uh, a woman of the streets, so to speak. Later on, it's going to say, uh, they say he's not a prophet because he doesn't know what sort of woman this is who is touching him. There's sexual overtones in this. So this is probably a woman of the night, a prostitute that walks up to a Pharisee's house and sees Jesus eating and then walks over to him. You got the scene? All right, here it is. When she learned that he, Jesus, was reclining at the fair, uh, reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, incredibly expensive, She's giving the best that she has. And standing behind uh, behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed them. Or in the Greek, it says she kept on kissing. Like, think about what is happening right now. Be Simon the Pharisee. And here's this woman from the streets coming in and just sobbing and wetting with her hair and just crying and and just kissing Jesus's feet, anointing him with the ointment. In those days, uh, it would have been shameful, shameful for a woman to let her hair down in public at all, if that helps you see how preposterous this scene is. In fact, there's this, the Talmud, it's this collection of oral traditions from the rabbis. It went so far as to say that a man could divorce his wife if she showed her hair to another man. This woman doesn't care what people think. She's so in love with Jesus and so desperately in need of him. She forgets herself entirely and goes to him. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him, that's his name, Simon, saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Spoken like a true Pharisee, isn't it? He was self-righteous, I made myself good. She obviously made herself bad is the posture that he has. And so it's because I made myself good, I should get good things. Because she made herself bad, she should get bad things. You see how the focus for the Pharisee is on how good or bad I am in and of myself. And so it's like, forget her. Get her out of here. That's what he's thinking. Um, Kent Hughes is a pastor, and he says the Pharisees, um, they they had the highest of moral standards, but they missed the most important thing, love God and love others. Kent Hughes uh, continues and says uh, that the Pharisee had an Arctic heart, a permafrost of the soul. The only thing that he was able to do with sinners was to condemn them because he had no grace to give. He hadn't understood the grace of Jesus in his own life. And so he has nothing to give to anybody else. Now, imagine this. This is not gonna be a perfect parallel. But imagine years ago, I first came to Rockland and you go, oh, this is nice. Let's have the pastor and his wife over to our house. And we're eating, some of you did this. We're eating outside at your house. And then all of a sudden, oh boy, that crazy neighbor comes up to the pastor mistakenly thinking i've got some like inner track to god or something and starts just like sobbing and begging and pleading that somehow i could do something that would be somehow like forgiving for them or 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 get them in a right relationship with god like you would just be mortified and that's me not jesus and that's not near, the, the sin that I'm describing is not near what we're describing in this context. The, the shameful thing that that person would have done, it is so much greater in that day. If Jesus, I imagine, had just gone, yeah, yeah, let's get her out of here and get on with our meal, um, it wouldn't have made the Bible, but like, they wouldn't have even cared. They'd have been like, thank God that's what's happening in this context. And so why does Jesus, you'll see in a minute, why does he give some kind of affirmation to this? And he's wanting to teach her something. He's wanting to teach Simon the Pharisee something. And then we can learn something from it as well. So Jesus said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, so it's just under two years of wages, and the other 50, about two months of wages. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? One owes two years wages, one owes two months wages, and he forgives them both. Who will care more? Well, guess what? This side of the sanctuary, you didn't know this when you walked in, but you all owe me two months of your income. You're indebted to me for that. And this side over here, you owe me two years of your income. You're indebted to me for that. Let's pretend you walk in today with that assumption. Two months, two years. You can owe me two years with this group over here and you guys two months. All right. Two months, two years. And if I were to stand up and I have a big announcement and I say, all of your debts are forgiven to me. They are all forgiven. This side if this were a real scenario, obviously, this side would go, that's really nice. This side would say, that is life-altering for me. When the Pharisees think, we're basically pretty good, oh, Jesus is here, that's great, we'll get a little bit extra, that's nice. When this woman comes and goes, I've got nothing and I'm desperate, she's going, this grace of Jesus Christ is life-altering. So he asked the question, which one do you think would love the guy more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said, you have judged rightly. It's very obvious. It's kind of like you're in the Bible class and someone goes, now, who is in the Bible? Who's the main character of the Bible? And you go, "Uh, Jesus? Like, it's so obvious. You go, I don't know if I want to say it and be wrong at church. He's asking him and he says, I suppose the one he canceled the larger debt for? Because he knows that there's gonna be a follow-up coming. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? Of course he does. Of course he does. What's he saying? You don't really see this woman. You don't see her the way that I see her. Listen to what she did. I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. In that day, the servant would do this when you walked in. And they didn't do that to Jesus. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. Another very common greeting, even for the men would do kind of the kiss on the cheek to greet each other. And he says, you didn't even do that. You're still, you still don't know who I am. You're still figuring this out. You did not anoint my head with oil, which would be like a common oil in the day, which was just a way of show, it wasn't necessary, but it was to try and say, this is an esteemed guest. And it says, but she has anointed my feet with ointment, with something very expensive. He's saying, she's doing the thing that you should have done. In that day, to take them and receive them in that way was to remove them from strangers, to welcome guests in the home. And he said, you didn't really do that. And she did. She knew her sin. She knew the depth of the forgiveness that she needed. And so what he's saying is, so she naturally loves me a lot. She is grateful for the forgiveness that she is receiving. And the Pharisee thought he was great, didn't really need a lot of forgiveness. And so his love for Christ was proportional to what he thought he needed. Let me give two quick implications of this. One is, um, there's been a phrase and there's been a thought in the culture that's very subtle that we need to be cautious of. And that is that we are all born basically good. That we're all inherently good. And why is that? It's an unbiblical teaching, but why is that? the teaching that we hear. Well, it's because no one wants to say, well, we're born in sin and we're born in depravity and we're born in selfishness. Like we don't wanna say that. So we have to say we're all born pretty good. But think how dangerous that is. If people grow up just thinking, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. And then you go to church and you hear what Jesus did. You go, that a boy, he kind of gave me that little boost I needed. And what does that do? It means if that's the boost he gave me, that's the love that I give him. But if we grow up going, I am born in sin and utter depravity, and Jesus came and rescued me from here to here, now all of a sudden our love for him is huge. You know, the other thing that comes to mind for me is we feel like we've got to be like a Pharisee, like walk around like a Pharisee a lot. Yeah, life's great, right? If we're actually able to deal with the depth of our sin and share that with others... One way you see the forgiveness of God is this. The other way, if we really deal with our depth of our sin and our insecurities and our struggles, and we go, Woo, let me show you what God has done in his forgiveness of me. When we are open with that, with others, we give glory to God because we are sharing the, the great forgiveness of God that he has shown to us. Can I be her ever? Sure, you can too. Yeah, we've all messed up, been far from God, bad, broken, and pulled back in by the grace of Jesus. But the beautiful news is this. In 48, it says, he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this? Who even forgives sins? They're starting to piece it together. And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. If the Pharisees were there, if any of the Pharisees, or Simon's there, if maybe some of his buddies have come up, and, and Jesus is declaring what has saved you, they would be surprised by this. Your actions have saved you, they might think. Your, your self-righteousness has saved you, they might say. Your, your past, you grew up with this kind of pedigree. You, you grew up, you didn't have all the really bad sins that all bad people did back in that day. That's what saved you, is your own self-righteousness. You've saved yourself. And he says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Here's the difference, and here's a big implication for us today. There's a difference between being saved by Jesus or being helped by Jesus. Would you say, Jesus helped me, or Jesus saved me? Jesus helped me, is he helped me get some stuff that I already want. I was already a pretty great guy, pretty great gal. And then Jesus just sort of helped me a little bit more. Or before we were in Christ, we, do we realize we were desperately in need of him and he has saved us and rescued us and brought us into relationship with God the Father? It's the difference. The first way is I don't really need Jesus. He's there to help me if I ever need him. But the other way says I am desperate for Jesus Christ every day. The first way Jesus helped me is we don't really need the cross. We just need, yay, the resurrection, which makes no sense chronologically, I understand. But it's, I don't want to talk about the, my sin. I just want to talk about Jesus, the, the victory that he had over the, in the cross or in the, uh, in the ascension, the resurrection. When Jesus saved me is we don't fast forward through Good Friday to get to Easter. We stop and we think, Jesus hung on the cross for my sin Here's the image that came to mind for me. Picture yourself as a vase. And there's two ways to picture it. One is um, it's a really nice vase, and it's sitting on a shelf, but it's been sitting on a shelf for quite some time, and so it's collected quite a bit of dust. And what you need Jesus to do, some say, is to come by and and just kind of clean the vase to get to all the good self-righteousness that was already under there, we just needed Jesus to come in and sort of wash us off a little bit. I would say that's how the majority of Americans view their faith before God. What he says here, picture the vase atop a very high shelf that wobbles and wobbles and falls and crashes to the ground and is just broken to smithereens. And only Jesus can put those pieces back together. That's what he has done. When we start to understand that, then our love for him increases. We can trust him, we can serve him, we can fall at his feet in adoration and weep with joy that our sin is forgiven because of what Christ has done.